Hey, y'all, Cable here, and this week's podcast probably brought to you by PhoneScope. If you don't have a PhoneScope, you need to get one. Let me tell you why. If you hunt, well, or maybe you just like to birdwatch. Although, if you birdwatch, I don't know why you're listening to this show. Maybe you hunt and you birdwatch. Either way, if you like to scout for things to shoot, or if you like to just look at and record wildlife, their attachment locks on to your spotting scope or binos. All you do? Hook your phone up to it, and you are now recording through your phone what your optic is picking up, whether that's 300 yards away or 1,000. It's crystal clear, and it couldn't be any easier. Go to Phonescope.com to order your Phonescope today, and you'll save 10% if you use the promo code LONESTAR. That's right. Tell them I sent you and save 10% off your Phonescope order today. Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. A little reckless Kelly kicking things off for us here on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. And there is no place I'd rather be than right here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So, thank you so much for being here today. It is a treat to get to talk hunting and fishing with you week in and week out. No doubt about that. I uh, hope everybody in the north and central zones and uh, and folks from all over the rest of the country, hope you all have been having a great first week or two of dove season. Uh, I know that I was able to take my kiddos out last Friday. Uh, it was Henry's. He, he'd been on a couple dove hunts before, but my girls, uh, the twins, they are two and a half. They had never been hunting of any kind. And uh, so that was one where I had uh, very low expectations. I figured if we shot a couple dove and were able to hunt for 30 minutes, that was a success. And hell, they made it all the way until about 930 uh, when the dove pretty much had slowed down by then anyway. And we ended up with seven birds and limited out on memories made and smiles uh that is for sure so take a kid hunting uh that's a memory that i will never forget and uh, be sure you take a lot of snacks because that will keep them preoccupied and you'll get to uh maximize your, your hunting opportunity dads and and moms if uh if you like to hunt as well uh so good times uh it's been uh a great first week of the season Lots of birds in North Texas. I still want to keep all of our friends and, and family down there on the Texas coast and, and Houston, of course, in our thoughts and prayers. The road to recovery is a long one, and they were uh, nowhere near out of the woods. Um, to, I mean, just life to return to some sense of normalcy. It's a, it's a rough deal, uh, no matter how you slice it. Also, we've got our uh, Texas Strong Salvation Army Hurricane Relief Fund shirt still going on viral style. Uh, it's got the Texas Strong logo on the front and then our Lone Star Door Show logo on the back. And if you purchase one, I'm donating 100% of those proceeds to the Salvation Army Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund. So it's going uh, for a great cause. And you can find the link to order uh, right there in my uh, Instagram profile. Um, also it's posted on our Facebook page as well. Um, 
So here's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good show, one that I'm excited about. Uh, I'll sit down for a one-on-one, well, it's actually a two-on-one conversation because we've got the co-directors of the brand-new documentary Trophy the Film set to join us, uh, Shaul Schwartz and Christina Klajau. Uh, and it's an interesting conundrum because Shaul was, he comes from Israel. He's lived in New York for maybe a decade and a half, but uh, very much an anti-hunter. And so he wanted to create a film to expose the trophy hunting industry. What he found, however, what they found was the exact opposite. It was an eye-opening experience for them. And sustainable use hunting, once again, uh, well, I mean... <laughs> If it pays, it stays, and if an animal has value, well, who's going to pay to protect it? Hunters are. So I think uh, what they found and what you will see in this film is both uh, eye-opening and provocative on quite a few levels, and and not all of it made us look good, guys and gals. I mean, there were some parts to this film where I was like, Ugh, I don't, that doesn't really make me proud to say I'm a trophy hunter, although I am. I mean, hey. I like a good set of horns on the wall and a freezer full of venison, so I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm trophy hunt until I'm blue in the face and eat every bit of it while I do it. Um, so anyway, they'll be on, uh, and that film is set to release next week, uh, so just in time for their premiere. Uh, and then after that, we'll spend a couple segments with Murray Schott. He is the founder of the Slow Glow Hunting Light, something that I think is going to be a game changer for guys that want to hunt hogs at night Uh, you've already got your feeder set up and you've got a hog problem well here's your solution it's a very innovative product Uh, one that you know not everyone has a thermal scope right so here's a an affordable solution and multiple guys can walk up on a feeder with this light going and just lay the pork down and and also for bow hunters which we'll get into a little bit more at the bottom of the hour uh it also caters towards the bow hunter, and, and we'll explain how here in just a little bit. So that's what's on the docket for today. It should be a good one. I'm excited about it. Hope y'all are as well. Uh, let's do uh, let's do this. Uh, oh, do need to remind you about our photo of the month contest, which uh, we've got a Lone Star Outdoors show branded cooler. We're giving away to our September winner. All you have to do. Email me your best hunting or fishing photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Instagram or Facebook page, and we will get you entered. And then our 12 monthly winners from 2017 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy black buck or axis deer with me at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Uh, so another great grand prize package brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Let's do a quick giveaway with early teal and early goose season about to open up here. I've got a box of heavy metal waterfowl loads, and we'll give these away. And we'll throw in a heavy metal cap, too, uh, to the third person to text in the word teal. That's teal to 214-289-7807. Text in the word teal, and you could win the heavy metal giveaway. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll be joined by the co-directors of the new eye-opening documentary, Trophy, the film. It's fascinating stuff coming at you right here on the Lone Star Outdoors show. You mean so much to me. Your music and spirit carry me. Hey, y'all. Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters. And whether you want to bow hunt hogs 
or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision. Under the cover of darkness, 3Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields. Or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3Curl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey, y'all, it's Jeff Foxworthy, and thanks for listening to my buddy Cable Smith on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Well, I don't care right or wrong. There's a classic from Willie Nelson bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show Power. Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors as well, Lone Star Beer and uh, Power Players. And thanks to you guys and gals for being here today. I do appreciate each and every one of you. As fall has arrived, man, it got down into the 70s in North Texas this week. That's absolutely insane. Cool weather. I mean, dove hunting is here. Lots of folks are already chasing elk and mule deer with a bow and arrow, uh, even muzzle loaders in the backcountry. I'm headed to Colorado this week. Cannot wait. Uh, got an elk and a mule deer tag to burn. So hopefully I won't be eating that uh, that tag sandwich like I did last fall when it comes to elk anyway. But hey, can't win them all. Uh, we are about to get into a, a subject that I think is absolutely fascinating. There's a new documentary coming out this week called Trophy. And uh, it was originally filmed... From an anti-hunter's standpoint, well, that thought process changed throughout this film's three-year making, and uh, we're going to be joined by the directors here momentarily. But first, this segment of the show brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. To get plugged in with this great group of like-minded folks who are passionate about education, hunter's rights, and conservation, Check us out at biggame.org. Love to have you. Okay, uh, let's bring on our first guest. Um, 
Shaul Schwartz and Christina Claggio, directors, co-directors of Trophy, the film. Um, guys, so great to have you here with me. Thank you. We're we're happy to to be here. Well, I want to uh, obviously dive into Trophy, which I just had the pleasure of screening uh, last night. Um, but before we do that, let's get to know you guys a little bit as far as you know where you're from and and what's your involvement with the or without you know uh, maybe didn't have a past in hunting. I don't really know, uh, but tell us where you came from in relation to um, you know your spin or, or your your thoughts on hunting. Shoa, why don't you start? Yeah, I uh, I actually grew up in Israel. I live in New York for the last 17 years and. Uh, not much hunting in Israel, so I wasn't really exposed too much uh, to hunting, and uh, certainly not to trophy hunting. Okay. And and I grew up in northern Minnesota, where hunting was around me all the time. I, as a child, was never a hunter, but I spent a lot of time with friends and family and deer stands and fishing, and so I had an experience of what hunting was. Uh-huh. Okay, so, um, so would you say that you were of an anti-hunting mindset or just kind of indifferent? Yeah, I was probably uh, pretty anti-hunting. I uh, It was just something I didn't like. I'll give you a, maybe a silly example, but when I came to the States and I saw or heard of people shooting deer, to me it was a little bit shooting Bambi. I, I couldn't understand why someone would uh, enjoy doing that. Oh, huh, okay. Interesting. So take us to where we are today. What what inspired you? What event led you to want to make a film that showed the underbelly of, of the trophy hunting industry? It was about three and a half years ago, and we were in our kitchen and came across, Shoal came across hunting photos online of somebody that was taking a trophy photograph over a hunt he had just killed. And I think he was really shocked and he was outraged and didn't understand that this is something that you could actually legally do. And I kind of challenged him and said, yes, this is legal. And it at times it does work for conservation. And we got an argument about it. And we decided to look further deep into it. And I think initially the idea was to go into the industry and shame them and to say that this is not right. We shouldn't be hunting these animals. And as we started to, we went to Safari Club International convention in Las Vegas and as we got there the kind of the world opened up and both of us kind of were extremely surprised at how vast the industry actually was. Okay okay so you had expectations of what you would uncover or what you thought would be an easy truth to prove you know um, when you undertook this project and that turned out to be not 100% the case. Um, You know much of this film centers on trophy hunting uh, in its role as a conservation tool in Africa. Um, and I found it very interesting, you know, all of the the folks that you would interview, whose kind of lives that you would dive into um, from a business standpoint and a survival standpoint. I mean, it covered a wide spectrum, but uh, a guy who really was kind of just there commenting, I guess his name was Craig Packer. And I found it interesting when he said that trophy hunting is responsible for South Africa restoring much of its natural ecosystem rather than, you know, instead of seeing a bunch of livestock or uh, agricultural fields. Um, about 20 years ago, this trophy hunting thing really took off over there. And, 
he his quote was one needs to recognize what they've achieved in South Africa kind of proved the point that in South Africa uh, there's more animals on the landscape today than there ever has been and, and it's totally because of trophy hunting yeah, I mean this is an example we've heard in the making of the film again and again and again um, you know we wanted to make a point uh, and I think to give voice to those who believe in sustained utilization and the thought of putting economic value on an animal and what that could possibly bring to the table. Um, hearing someone like Craig Packer, such a well-known um, ecologist, sorry, I flipped the word, such a well-known ecologist, talk about that and confirm that to us was very interesting. Uh, Craig is a, you know, is a pretty balanced uh guy he he knows when to say bad and good things about success and unsuccess of hunting and uh and you know we wanted to reaffirm that belief and that understanding that south africa i mean it's just a fact the numbers of animals have gone up thousands percent over the last 25 years mm-hmm. okay well so from a trophy hunting standpoint i mean it, it covers all these species but really it dives into the breeding of of rhinos and lions and and you have a breeder uh, one of each um that are kind of you know that you follow throughout the film uh, the rhino horn ban um and john humes uh yes he's he's the biggest rhino farmer in the world um but he's kind of fighting a losing battle because he can't do anything with his rhinos he can't sell them uh, or he couldn't previously uh he's fighting a battle because he's having poachers come in and you guys film that was crazy uh to get that on film you guys filmed this i guess it was the day after a poaching massacre on his place and i think it was like eight rhinos maybe that had been killed for uh the rhino horn what was that like for you guys to walk up on that scene so just, just to factually correct that's actually five rhinos oh, on five. that particular day uh yeah i think it's you know I, I think we oh we spend three and a half years making this film and we spend a great deal of time with John Hume. Um, hunt uh, in uh, poaching is something that is just a major threat. It's almost like something we would in, hear again and again from John and hear and see the economic cost. He literally has a private army that he would constantly fight to uh, hire to fight this. So I think being there at that moment and not only witnessing it, but witnessing after you spent some time and saw how much care John has for these animals was very powerful and personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to add to that, I think for me it was really heartbreaking to see how we had been spent we had spent a couple of years with them already, and so to see how this is constantly a challenge for him and how he tries so hard to creates a place where these rhinos are protected and it gets to a point where he just keeps on trying and trying and they just keep on getting poached and poached and to him he has a real viable solution that could help curb the poaching but he feels that the entire world is against him and i think at that point well he's right to be honest (laughs) he is right and i think when you walk up to those rhinos and you see this and you see how heartbroken he is and you see how you know, this idea in his mind that this could be prevented or lessened if we just look at this issue from a different perspective uh-huh. was was really challenging. Yeah. John was instrumental in our 
changing our mind or our strong belief, coming to a strong belief in sustained utilization, the solution he offers is not just unique uh, and powerful. It's, you know, it's, and just to clarify, John actually persuaded, uh, in my opinion, us to not believe that you should hunt rhinos because you can, why kill an animal if you can actually get it eight to ten times in this life value off the horn you know i think the beauty and idea of sustainability is an understanding that putting economic value could save at least some um in the case of rhino we really don't have to kill it and so here is a species that's dying because it contains the world's most expensive animal commodity and people are willing to do anything to do it and suddenly you take that idea and say wait because it has that commodity we can save it if you were to legalize this, if you were to give it to the communities where poachers come, surely they wouldn't kill the rhino. They could get eight, nine, ten more horns in its life. Who would do that? Yeah, and it was fascinating because John actually cuts the horn off his rhinos every two years to help prevent poaching. And the thing about the way that rhinos are, are, are handled is so infuriating because we've all seen these large-scale ivory burns. They take literally... Thousands of pounds. I mean, tons upon tons of ivory, and they burn it. What you've done at that point is taken a, an extremely limited commodity, and you've destroyed a big part of it. Well, all that does is make the existing rhinos that much more valuable to poachers, and therefore the poachers being willing to take bigger risks. It's, it's complex. I think when you create a ban and you burn ivory, um, you're to some degree putting in another uh, order with a poacher. Um, On the other hand, when it comes to elephant, you have to be realistic. There is no sustained way. You know, you can't fire these animals. They take way too long. They're way too disruptive. And unlike rhino, you can't cut the horn and it grows back. So that's a tricky solution. Mm -hmm. Um, What's shocking to us is with the reality in rhino that there is a way to keep the animal alive. There is a way. Yes, it looks bad. You have a 15 to 20 minute uh, operation. You have to put the animal to sleep and it it doesn't look pleasant. But this is something that's actually now uh, being done by people who are against legalization and selling just to protect their rhinos. So as you said, it's a lot less likely that poachers would... Uh, would kill a rhino that's dehorned. By the way, sometimes they even do that. This is how uh, sick this uh, world is because there's you, when you dehorn a rhino, you have to leave some for it to be healthy and well. Um, but certainly it's a way to protect, and more importantly, if you can garnish income by selling horn, then you are, as, as with hunting, you're really encouraging people to breed them and take care of them. Right now in South Africa, nobody wants a rhino. This is something that people just don't see from the outside, and it's very hard to get this across. People are very much, well, leave the wild, wild, don't touch this. And I think one has to understand that if you're not, lure, uh, if you're not willing to pay some price of domestication, you might lose this animal altogether. Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest with you, I just got back from my first trip to South Africa. I harvested nine animals on a seven-day safari. And uh, the place where we hunted was 30,000 acres um, in a game preserve, and then we hunted 140,000 free-range acres. But I asked my PH, and he's the owner. I said, so 
have you ever had rhinos before? He said, yes, on my previous property. I said, why don't you have them here? He goes, because they're a pain in the ass. You can't do anything with them. He said, same with the lions. He said, other than the Cape Buffalo, it's really, you know, the big five isn't worth fooling with. Um, mm -hmm. So, and that's sad, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, I think, I think we, our experience with that was a, a lot is that a lot of um, outfitters that were breeding other animals to be hunted also had rhinos, but many of them didn't want to keep them on the property because they were super dangerous. Yeah. They were such an attraction for, for poachers and in turn their lives and their staff lives became in danger. So they just wanted to get rid of them. Uh -huh. And so really the only guy that kind of swoops up these rhinos is John Hume. Yeah. Well, and he did say like, um, obviously rhino horn is more valuable in weight than gold or heroin. Uh, one rhino horn he had in his hand, he said, would fetch, I think, $250,000 or something like that in Vietnam on the black market. Mm -hmm. So that just to put into pr perspective how much one horn is worth. Um, well, let's do this because I, I do want to keep this conversation going, but we need to work in a quick commercial break. Uh, still a lot more to get into regarding Trophy, uh, awesome documentary I just had the pleasure of watching this week. Um, are you all cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Sure. Sounds good. Cool. And that segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by the all-new Drive Over Chalk. If you're hauling an ATV, four-wheeler, Jeep, golf cart, or otherwise, just drive over it and dock it with the Drive Over Chalk. You just install it right there on your flatbed trailer. It's so easy. And you can find it at driveoverchalk.com. Tell them I sent you and get free shipping. That's a $50 value. Use the promo code Lone Star or Cable and protect your investment by docking it with the Drive Over Chalk. All right, we will be right back with more from the directors of Trophy, the film, Joel Schwartz and Christina Klajow, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Seems like every time I turn around Somebody's trying to knock me down I don't have any tricks left up my sleeve I said, lucky that ain't nothing new Skyline Radio is the name of that one there from Cody, Canada and The Departed bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club Cable Smith riding shotgun with you uh, Thank you so much for being here today uh, thanks to Lone Star Pier and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our presenting sponsors. Uh, we've still got uh, some fascinating discussion to get into with Shaul Schwartz and Christina Klajo of Trophy the Film. If y'all haven't seen this, um, or actually it's not out yet, but it'll be out next week. So put it on your calendar. Find out when it's coming to your city, or you can watch it online. Uh, but every hunter out there is going to want to see this film. I think it uh, it does a great job portraying both the good and bad uh, that result from trophy hunting, and the good far outweighs the bad, y'all. But before we jump back into that discussion, this segment of the show, 
proudly brought to you by Pulsar Thermal Imaging and Night Vision Optics. Check out the new Pulsar Trail. It's a game changer. I just put one on my Mossberg AR. And as far as clarity and quality in a thermal optic, (laughs) you will not beat it. I guarantee you that. It's the Pulsar Trail, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. We'll move in right along here. Uh, Shaul, Christina, thanks for sticking around through the break. Um, There was one thing that really stood out when I was viewing this film trophy uh, that you guys created, and it was the cinematography was absolutely stunning. So I wanted to ask, um, is that y'all's doing, or did y'all have you know another cameraman on site that was actually behind the camera? Yeah, it's it's both of us. We we come we we come from a background of photojournalism and being still photographers. So cinematography is an incredibly important tool for us. So we part of the reason we spend so much time is to make sure that we really take the viewer visually, not only story wise, deep deep into the bush and into the story, and make you really feel close and in the thick of things. Mm-hmm. And I think because too that we you know, our style is to get into these deep character narratives is that we wanted to be able to play and use our cinematography and journalistic tools in order to bring you close, intimate stories, but also make it feel big and large like like Africa is and make you feel very close to the animals. So we spent a lot of time using different tools and trying to get to that, the heart of that. Hmm. Okay. And, and like we said, there's a lot of interwoven narratives in this uh, film. Um, from uh, from hunters, I mean, you you chronicled one American hunter's quest to take the big five. I forget his name, um, but uh, Philip Glass. Uh huh. So so he was a big part of the film. Um, and you know, speaking of the big five, we already talked about the rhino situation. Let's go back to lions, because ever since the the cease of the lion blow up catastrophe, I think. Even the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service felt so much pressure from the non-hunting, anti-hunting public to do something uh, that you know they, you know, they basically told this lion breeder or what you guys captured was this lion breeder in South Africa. What the hell is he going to do with all these lions if American hunters can't come over and hunt them? Um, yeah, I, that's I forget his name. Great. Uh, his name is Krista Gomes of Mabula Safaris, and I think he's really just an example. Um, look, it's a very controversial issue. Uh, there, there's obviously you can hunt a lion in the wild off of quotas in certain places, and then uh, predominantly in South Africa, we're seeing what's referred to usually as the canned hunting of lions grown in ranches. Sometimes people call it ranch uh, ranch lions, and it is a controversial issue here. You know, unlike most of the other game, we're seeing animals. Uh, literally caged in small, small, small areas till a few days, uh, maximum a week, I'd say, before a hunter comes. And to your quote, yes, we're seeing, you know, a lot of these outfitters in South Africa are saying, you know, we're getting a lot of clientele that's coming to hunt many more beyond the line. If for one, you take away the lion, uh, they're just not going to come here, and thus it's a risk to the business at large. Others, uh, you know, say this is something having ranched lions is something that will prevent or minimize uh, the taking of lions in 
the wild. Mm-hmm. You know, with that said, I think to me, and this is this is what we try to do in trophy. We, I think it's fair to say we're not we're being fair to everybody, and we're not forcefully trying to conv- uh, convince anybody of anything. We wanted to create a discussion in this field because we feel it's such a polarized subject. To some degree, like I was three years ago, I was ready to scream before I was ready to think. Mm-hmm. And once we got into it, we said, you know, nobody has the complete truth. Hunting alone, anti-hunters, people. We need a lot of different ways to raise money and think about this subject open-mindedly to create true conservation. Uh, to me, the lion, the lion issue is hard because, you know, the welfare of the animal is not like John Hume's rhinos or a wildebeest on a fenced area, but huge and vast like most of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we definitely battled with it when it comes to the world response to Cecil, you know, once you knew the subject, you understood to some degree how ridiculous it is. Um, You could be against trophy hunting and you could cry about it and that's your right. And hopefully you study why you say that. But, you know, this idea that he did this, you know, anybody who knows anything about hunting understands what a pH is and how hunting is regulated and how it works. And to, go after someone personally the way Dr. Palmer had to go through, um, you know, it speaks also to this time that we live in, that things are so polarized and people on social media are willing to go and do, say such things that it's kind of unbelievable to me, to be honest. Oh, and I get it all the time on our Instagram and Facebook. And it never ceases to amaze me that people value a wild animal's life over a human. And the things that they'll say to you and say about your mother and your kids and, you know, hoping that they all get hit by an 18-wheeler, it's mind-blowing. It really is. Um, but, you know... You know, go, you know we oh. launched our Facebook page for the film, uh, you know, a number of months ago in order to support the film, and we, too, get a ton of that type of backlash. Yeah. And it's it's quite heartbreaking. It's hard to, like, weed through it. You know, but we we do understand that this accountability of being online is also something different than in real life. So yeah. we try to like. Yeah. But yes, it's very challenging. Yeah. Well, and, and just going back to the lions one more time to hit on that. Uh, the breeder he got pretty emotional a couple times when you asked about. Yeah, he turns these animals out ultimately to be hunted after they're you know when they're a mature male and and they've done, sown their wild oats you know um, as breeding stock. And uh, and he teared up, and 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 he even asked you to turn the 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 camera off for a minute, uh, because he does get attached to these animals, but at the same time he realizes you know that's a means to I think keep them around, um, and so that was a uh, that was interesting to see that it's still rough for him. I will say the only as as a hunter the only moment in the film that I, I personally had an issue with was the guy who shot the uh, crocodile. While he was drinking a beer, seemingly, and just thought it was a big party, and uh, that that made me think, man, as a hunter, I don't really know if I'm down with that. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten that kind of feedback from that scene, but that's how I how I felt about it. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of feedback from that scene in that same light from both sides, both from those that are not hunters and those that are hunters, as this is not a practice to, that they agree with, and. I think it's interesting because it does, it is a practice that does exist, even though we don't necessarily think that this is hunting, it's out there. And 
I think the one thing that was really surprising to us is we screened this film early on with a group of hunters as a test screening. And, you know, they came out of it saying, you know, thank you. You gave us a fair shake. And I think that was really important to us because it also made us feel that hunters themselves would use it as almost a mirror to look at them and to say that maybe some of these practices are good and maybe are not, that it's not all the same across the board. Mm -hmm. And I think that was important. So we have gotten a lot of that feedback from that scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something that hunters have a really hard time. It basically shows kind of the ugly side of, of canned hunting, if you will. And I think it is important for hunters to know that it's not just a few. This this does happen. It serves a particular kind of clientele. And to be honest, it's a growing kind of clientele. Um, and, and it's hard to look at. I do just want to point, and it's funny as a guy who came as much underhanding as possible, that even this hunting, if you at the end of the day look at the numbers and the success in terms of what it's done in South Africa, it does actually work. So what it does is test our moral ground, which is obviously is an important important uh, way to look at it and most hunters have, were disgusted by it yeah. um but you know people i've heard hunters say oh this should be eliminated and, you know we again we didn't make this film to make anybody come to a certain conclusion we made this film to raise dialogue and to me it's like yes it's a moral hard thing to see but if you look at it from a number game it does actually work including many farms in Limpopo who have these kind of hunting uh, services available mm-hmm well, and I always preach on our show, high fence, low fence, it doesn't matter to me um, what another hunter does. Now, that whole thing, personally, I wouldn't have done it. I'm not knocking anyone else that does it uh, because at the end of the day, it doesn't affect me. You know, I'm going to hunt how I want to hunt. I encourage everyone else to hunt how they want to hunt. And as long as you can sleep at night and you're putting money into conservation and keeping these, like you said, even though it was hard to watch, um, it is what it is. It's keeping these animals healthy, their populations, uh, you know, vibrant. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, like you said, it's, it, it did spark, it, it worked cause it sparked something in me. It made me think about it. Um, well, one, one other character I wanted to talk about here, uh, the redheaded, I think he was a park ranger or was he a game warden? Yeah. He's both a wildlife officer and an anti-poacher in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so how many countries did you guys go to in addition to South Africa? So we spent South Africa, Namibia, Namibia and Zimbabwe. Okay, okay, so he was in Zimbabwe. Um, one of the things that I, I really keyed in on was there was a lion that was coming in and preying on livestock in a, in a village, uh, and this family had lost all their livestock. They had to move their last cow into the house with them to sleep at night to just pray that this lion wouldn't you know get their last source of protein and uh and then you guys you know through an interpreter they explain that they understand there's a, this 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 lion has a value because it brings money to the community they understand that these other animals have a value they bring money and protein to the community but they're in a catch-22 because they're having to sleep with their damn cow yeah you know Chris was the character that we came upon when we got to Zimbabwe and his, the way that he works with the communities of this idea of being an anti-poacher, wanting to go after those that are killing elephants for their tusks, but at the same time, telling the community that this is your only resource. 
these wild animals will last forever if you just look after them. Mm-hmm. And to most of community members, if they don't have somebody there saying that you need to have an economic incentive to look after these animals, many of them will turn to poaching and just go after those lions, for example, that are berating their cows in their communities. And it's interesting coming from the Western perspective is this idea, a lot of us have this idea of a lion being a cute, cuddly creature on the Lion King. And it's a very different perspective in Africa. You know, if you're in Brooklyn and you have a lion running around, you know, it's going to get shot very quickly. But we're asking people in Africa to live with these animals because we from the West have this perspective of not wanting them to be shot. And I think this human wildlife conflict that you find in Africa is a very, very real thing. And so Chris's incentive is to say, okay, let's look after these animals. Let's live with these animals. Let's not poison them. Let's not poach them because really the only person that benefits in those situations are the person that's poaching them and not the community. Mm-hmm. And instead, for example, if you have a hunter comes in and hunters in Zimbabwe do not take out problem animal control is what they would call that situation. But if you have somebody coming in and hunting a trophy lion in those areas, the money that is taken from those trophies does in turn subsidize for Chris's anti-poaching units. It goes back to the community, it goes into their pockets, they get the meat, and it creates conservation in those areas where there is no other resources. Mm-hmm. And and you hit on what what I was going to ask you is you you saw firsthand how the financial impact is a positive one for uh, these villagers. Because I think a lot of people think, oh yeah, people always just say if it pays, it stays, and hunting is conservation. And, and hunters like to say that, and we believe in it, but are those dollars really going back into the communities, or are the safari outfits, the PH, is just pocketing it all? You know, I, I think we want to believe that a lot is going back to the community, and I think for hunters to be true to what they do, they should try and demand that as much as you can. Of course, it's very hard for you as a foreign hunter to know. You know, in Zimbabwe, we did see uh, a campfire, an old program that was very, very efficient in distributing that money back and building schools and wells and so on. And I do think that, uh, you know, many, many people say, well, you're just breeding corruption. This is what's happening. And Again, it's not completely in the hunter's control, but I think we should stay honest to that. And if we really believe that somewhere is getting overhunted or the quotas are messed with or money is not going back, then a responsible hunter should say should say it out loud and say, hey, I, I didn't like this. I don't think this is right. I do want to listen to the local numbers. I do even hunters like to not like fish and wildlife, but to some degree what fish and wildlife is trying to monitor is whether hunting is actually keeping down the numbers of poaching. Mm -hmm. Because once you install, what Chris is trying to do is install ownership of these wildlife into the tribal people that live there. And if you really do that successfully, they will try to fight off people poaching because it's like stealing their bank. Right. but it's a, it's a different it's a difficult balance you know we all know that there's corruption in africa but i think the scarier thing is say not to try you know i I've, I've seen aunties say well it breeds it breeds corruption and to some degree you know it, it, there's there's corruption possibly everywhere uh by stopping we're certainly not going to help do we need to fight constantly for better standards and be real about it including as hunters yes i believe so mhm mhm yeah, well, and, and no hunter, no true hunter is interested in, in hunting an endangered species, you know. At that point, you're just a killer, 
with no regard to conservation. And I don't think anyone that listens to our show uh, would would go out there and kill, and kill something that they know, oh, this could help be the demise of this species. Uh, that's not that's not what hunting's about. Um, last thing I want to hit on is the elephant that was shot in the film, how quickly the village was there to butcher it, to skin it, um, and to make use of all the resources that that elephant uh, provided them. Yeah, you know, I think for us it was a little bit of a mind because, you know, initially when you're you're out tracking these animals with Philip, who was hunting the elephant, and you spend a three, three or four days, and this was very early on in our journey of hunting with him, and the elephant was killed, and it was quite emotional for both Shovel and I. We both, neither of us had seen elephants in the wild before, and it was quite, in, it just was really hurtful and hard to watch. But then afterwards, about an hour later, you know, this whole village and surrounding villages came onto the elephant, and they were so joyful, and they were so happy, and they were so excited that this animal was neat for them and I think it goes back to this relationship with our human relationship with animals and how my relationship is much different and I could never understand that their relationship is that to to them this is protein this is meat this is their livelihood Mm -hmm. and so it was really kind of this you know it really played with your mind in the situation is that on one hand you're so hurt and you're so upset by this animal being dead but on the other you're so joyful for the people that get the meat from the animal yeah yeah exactly exactly uh, they, yeah. they even said what oh man this one's too small we wanted a bigger one so we could have more meat you know? i was actually going to hit on that so that <laughs> actually was the complexity of life because i think to some degree as somebody who was against hunting i did understand on paper that hunting uh in most cases works quite well in that case in namibia you know in that area generally speaking hunting has also been a key factor of keeping poaching numbers down and so there's another success but throughout this journey uh philip and his ph were looking for a very old elephant you know the classic old male for me and i do have to say they did shoot a young bull yeah um and it does show and again we made i think a very fair film to hunters or to some degree to that they can take people who are against them and say look here this helps explain this here's people who who didn't understand and who now understand it but on the other is my plea to hunters to actually be because you we are treating this fair to look and to be careful about what can also doesn't work because you know life is not black and white obviously and I, 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 it, it did, uh, it would be hard to watch for me as a non-hunter, uh, but I understood the need and certainly the people coming to eat the meat, we enforced it. Um, but the fact that I was young did mm-hmm. play a, a role in, in my heart to say, we always have to understand that no solution is perfect and we have to fight to make it as good as could be and to really try and honor that, not just as a lip service. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was unfortunate. Uh, and I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen everywhere. Once in a while, a young bull uh, or a young buck uh, gets taken out when it probably shouldn't have. Um, it's collateral damage, I guess, but it's unfortunate. Um, let me ask you, or actually one graphic that flashed across the scene, uh, 1100 an- uh, elephants are, are hunted by um, trophy hunters in Africa and across Africa every year and that's like um 
what was it, one tenth or even higher? Uh, yeah, eleven hundred uh, elephants are taken legally in Africa each year. An estimated thirty thousand are poached illegally. Oh my god! And the way the way we kind of wanted did this graphic is you see this elephant, and I think you know as a viewer, particularly if you're not from the hunting community, and it is hard. It was hard to watch. It took time for the elephant to to die. Uh, and and when we say 1100, you usually feel the cinema kind of upset and people kind of really, and then we switch it on you and say, but look at the number illegally. Yeah. And I think it puts the problem in perspective. Um, now, again, to me, the key is if hunting really works and if it gets the people meat and if it makes the locals care enough, then we have to demand that that 30,000 number come down. Mm. That's where hunters are going to really get not only the benefits, but the persuading power that this really is working. Um, The more we can install that ownership in locals, the more we could prove that in places where you allow hunting, keep the quotas, the people are happy, they will enforce themselves. They'll, you know, you're running in those blocks and you'll see someone who looks fishy and people will start talking. You're stealing their bank. And, you know, it's, it's hard. The elephant is in a dangerous place. You know, we do have to recognize that while the numbers now are quite big, the rate that it's disappearing and being poached is extremely alarming. Yeah. Well, you started the graphic with 10 million, uh, 10 million elephants. 10, 10 million a century ago, 350,000 as we speak. And 10% and of the, that almost is getting killed, is getting wiped out by poachers every year. That's every not sustainable. Year. That's They're going to be gone very soon. They're, you know, I think we we can't stress enough to people after a couple of years in Africa how much particularly elephants and rhinos are on the edge. Uh, if we don't change those trends, they're just going to be gone. And it's not like some hoax or it's not something that it'll be now, it'll be in our lifetime, it'll be soon. We will see these numbers just slide. So we are in a very crucial stage. Now, you know, then people say, well, how can you hunt elephants at all? Well, you know, there's places like in Botswana that there's a lot of elephants in one. Even in Kruger, there's kind of too many people get upset when you say this, too many elephants for the land. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, we're looking at a population going away, and we really have to fight the poaching war with all we got because it's devastating. Yeah. Well, to wrap things up here, uh, guys, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the film. You guys, uh, you've portrayed the hunting community fairly. Um, what you've told me here today is, you know, Shaul from the anti-hunter to someone who understands trophy hunting's place, uh, sustainable use hunting is a viable way to keep, you know, healthy populations of animals, whether it's in Africa or other, or here or anywhere else. Um, and I, and I want to encourage folks to watch this documentary. Where can they find it and when? So it's going theatrical starting next week in New York on September 8th and then on September 15th in L.A. And then there'll be a rollout nationwide. And we're doing a a, a crowdsourcing um, theatrical release in the parts of the country where you can actually go online onto our website of trophy.film. And there you can select get tickets and you can type in your city and if there's a screen near your city, you can purchase tickets for that night event. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of like spreads this out. And the date is September 26th, is that it's going to be in about 150 screens across the United States. 
And so we really encourage people to, if there is a screening near you, to go and log on and purchase tickets for those screenings. Well, it's yeah, let me just explain, explain that community idea again. We wanted to make sure that we're getting to small communities everywhere in rural America. And so September 26th, if you're not there, you click on that button and you can host your own screening. And we will open as many screens as we can sell tickets for that to happen. But September 26th, uh, you can see those screenings and buy tickets at trophy.film. Awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, y'all's time. I, I look forward to your next project, whatever it is. I'm sure it's going to be great. Uh, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Cable. Great talking to you. All right. Y'all take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right. There they go. Shaul Schwartz and Christina Klajau of the documentary, uh, awesome new film coming out, Trophy, the film. Y'all check it out. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy with two locations, one in Marion, Texas, outside of New Braunfels, and another in San Antonio. Uh, I've been using Josh and Becky for six years now. They take care of all of my mounts from whitetail to exotics, uh, speckled trout, bass, you name it. They do quality work. Actually, they do amazing work with quick turnaround time. Uh, two things you don't find at a lot of taxidermy shops. So check it out. Rustic Reminders Taxidermy, and you can find them at gr8mounts.com. All right, let's take a break. Up next, uh, we're going to talk some hog hunting with Murray Schote. He is the creator of the Slow Glow Hog Light, and it's something I think both rifle hunters and bow hunters are going to want to know about. It's coming at you next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. This is T-Boone Pickens. Welcome to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But that's just the whiskey walking out on me When she gets it in her mind to leave That bottle makes her little Music of Andrew Delaney bringing us back here on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your week with me. As, man, we've uh, got an interesting topic to get into here momentarily. Um, But first, I do want to say thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our presenting sponsors. And uh, before we talk some hog hunting, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer 
the National Beer of Texas, available again this fall in the brand-new Lone Star Beer Camo Can. It's Lone Star Beer's very own pattern, which makes it that much cooler. Uh, So check it out. It's the Lone Star Beer Camo Can, and you can find it any place. They sell cold beer. (laughs) What do y'all say we talk a little hog hunting, huh? I mean, who doesn't like killing and then eating pigs? Lord knows we have plenty of them. They're not going anywhere. Uh, So without further ado, let's talk some hog hunting with Murray Choate. He is the founder of the Slow Glow Hog Light and a lifelong outdoorsman. Murray, thanks for being here. Well, you're surely welcome. We're looking real forward to it. Absolutely, man. Um, And we're going to talk about this innovative hog light that you came out with. But uh, before we do that, let's get to know you a little bit. I I like to uh, kind of figure out what makes you tick. So tell us about your background as an outdoorsman, you know, what you grew up hunting and where you're from, all that good stuff. Okay. Well, we've been hunting for about 50 years in the central Texas area. We actually live just outside of Austin. Um, we own a, a family ranch in Wimberley, which is just southwest of Austin. Mm, good wine. Uh, <laughs> you're exactly, yeah. you know. Um, the, uh, my dad had a deer lease more in Fredericksburg, so he would always go off and hunt with his friends, and my mother would take us to our family ranch in Wimberley. Uh, and I started at the age of about five years old, sitting in the bottom of a deer stand, uh, you know, watching her hunt. So, grew up from a hunting and fishing family, so we've always, uh, Really enjoyed it. Uh, we didn't have hogs on our Wimberley property till about 10 years ago. Mm. And all of a sudden when they showed up, it was, uh, you know, totally a different different story. You know, we first, uh, you know, hated that, that they showed up because they do cause a lot of damage and, and affect the deer population. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Uh, we soon found that uh, hog hunting is probably one of the funnest things you can possibly do, uh, whether you're gun hunting or archery hunting, you know, either one, if, it, if it's done right. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, and we still hunt all over uh, Texas and, and out of the state. Um, but hogs are definitely the, the our, I guess, number one um, method of enjoyment. We, we really love it. Yeah. Well, and the thing about hogs is no limit, no season. <laughs> so, right. Really, Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have a three-month whitetail season. That's great. But then the rest of the year, you're sitting around waiting for whitetail season to come back. So. Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, we've got this hog problem, and, and some folks love them, some folks hate them, but there's only two kinds of properties in Texas, Murray. There's the ones that have hogs and the ones that will have hogs. So, Oh, ab- you know. absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, it so, is nice to, I'm sorry? On, on the hog hunting to be able to, to hunt them at night. Oh, you know, yeah. that's not, not something that you typically can do with game animals, but, mm-hmm. but uh, hogs are a different story, and, and for the most part, they are nocturnal. Now, I know if you... That you, you know, there's a lot of properties that you see hogs during the day. Um, and basically, we always say, if you can see them during the day, you have got one heck of a lot of hogs. Because just, just try to go out at night and hunt, and you'll be very surprised of, of the quantity that you actually have, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. that, uh, that will come out at night under the lights. Well, so when did you feel the need to create a new hog light? Well, we've um, actually been hunting, you know, for for 20 plus years on hogs, and there was just nothing available commercially uh, that you can. There's there's a little inexpensive feeder lights that that attach with a magnet to the bottom of the feeder, uh, but they're on all the time. They do not provide enough light to 
you know, to, to see what's there. I mean, you can kill hogs on occasion, but sometimes you really don't know what's under there. Um, the bigger boars will always hang out kind of on the outskirts and never get directly under the feeder. Mm-hmm. So um, basically I started developing, I think just about everybody that's hunted hogs for a while know that uh, a flash of light on is what scares them the most. You know, you can take a Q-beam, you can shine it straight up in the air and come down real slow and finally kind of light up the area. And and all of us old time hunters, we've done that for years and years. So uh, back many years ago, I used to, to take an incandescent light, like a trouble light that mm-hmm. you use working on a car that wor- works off a 12-volt battery. Well, I would make, uh, kind of develop my own where I would take a rheostat out of an old trolling motor and kind of wire things together and, and run about uh, 50 foot of wire out and sit under a tree and actually be able to control the intensity of my light with that little rheostat. Hmm. Um, and that kind of started things. Um, and then over the, I am a biomedical engineer by trade. So electronics was always uh, kind of a passion outside of hunting. So many years ago, started putting stuff together. And then with the LED technology, when it blew up a few years ago, um, I was fortunate enough to have the, the electrical background to know uh, the LED driver type technology. Hmm. So we developed the most efficient system on the market, um, and it's got what we call the slow glow technology. And that's where once it's triggered, it slowly lights up. You know, it takes two minutes to go from just barely on to a light that's strong enough that gun hunters can take 100-yard shots with just inexpensive rifle scopes. You know, you don't need night vision. Uh, you don't need a 50 millimeter objective on your scope, just a, a regular rifle scope. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a bow hunter, you can stalk in behind the light and get up within 10 feet of the hogs without them knowing you're there. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's, but it's definitely a, a system that's different as opposed to a, a feeder light that goes straight down. We mount ours horizontally. So it casts a very large, uh, lighted area. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that, that you're capable at a hundred yards with a, with a rifle scope. You can easily shoot 20 yards either side, left or right, of the feeded you know, the feeder area. So, what does it mount to so, the feeder itself? Well, we've got a variety of different ways because it's it's designed to be horizontally mounted. We generally will mount ours about 30 feet from the feeder, uh-huh. and it would be you know anywhere from four to five feet off of the ground. So, it's casting an area like lighting a, a, a you know very very large area, probably 50 yards. Uh, downfield is where you can shoot. And then, like I said, 20, 20 yards either side. But it's got a variety of different ways to mount. First off, it's made on a PVC platform so that you have a one-inch female PVC fitting on the bottom of the light. So if you just wanted to, to drive a one-inch water pipe or electric pipe in the ground, the slogo will slip directly over that, and you can put your battery on the ground, and it's good for like three to four nights of hunting just with a standard 12-volt feeder battery. Mm-hmm. It's also got a uh, standard one-quarter inch tripod fitting on the back side. So if you've got an old camera tripod laying around, you can put it on a tripod and set the tripod anywhere you want it, put your battery on the ground, and, and like I say, three to four nights of hunting. Um, hmm. And then, of course, we do. We have a couple of upgrades where if you want to put it to a T-post, uh, we have what's called the stealth box, and it is actually a tactical case that holds everything. And once you get to, to your hunting spot, if you have a T-post already mounted, uh, it takes about three minutes to put the kit together, and then you just attach it directly to the back of the T-post, uh, and it holds the battery inside. And then if you decide that you do want to leave it out more than three or four days, uh, it's got a spot for a solar panel 
uh, that will connect to it. And then you can leave it out, you know, year round. Mm -hmm. But we're definitely more of, uh, you know, thinking about lighting an entire area and not just that little small faint uh, glow underneath a feeder. Yeah. Oh, and I've hunted with those feeder lights that are, you know, they're either red or green and they come on and it's just, you barely can make anything out that's under there. Yeah. So yeah, and just a... about all hunters, just about all hunters have those, um, but just about all hunters hate them. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, they're very, they're very inexpensive, uh, but you get what you pay for, yeah. you know, and um, with the slow glow, you know, ours, you know, according to what kind of feeder lights that, that a hunter might have, Slow glow can be up to 20 times brighter than those lights. And, this is and the way light, that we right? get away with that, yeah, it's just lighting it up slowly. Mm-hmm. As long as you light it up slowly, uh, you know, you're golden. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't think that, that hogs can see green or they don't think they can see red. Uh, but, you know, our experience has shown that they actually can see whether it's shadows or the colors. They see them and they see them real well. But if they're not smart enough to detect a slight change in intensity, so over a two-minute period after ours is triggered by motion, they're they're totally lit up. Our tagline is they'll never know what lit them, <laughs> and that is so true because once once you know it trips in motion, and two minutes later, I mean they're still feeding and they are so lit up that uh, it's really ridiculous. How, you know it's like a daylight, and uh, they just they just do not detect it. Well, let me ask you this, because every deer hunter is going to want to know, okay, that's great for my hog problem. How does it affect mm-hmm. the deer? What do they? How do they react to it? Well, we all know that, you know, you can't hunt deer at night, but right. the, but the nice part off, about this, yeah. yeah, no, the, the nice part about this is that it don't affect deer at all. Um, you know, we've had trail cameras and, and we get out and just observe the deer that are there. And because our light comes on so slow, it, it's got the same effect on deer as it does hogs. Mm-hmm. It's just very soothing to them, and you know they're they're just not smart enough to realize that it's not just the moon that's changing to lighting up the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any problems with either red or green. I know for for there's there's exotics that you can hunt at night. Let's just use axis deer as an example. Um, axis deer do not care at all about the green light they come in all the time but a red light they'll stay out on the outskirts and it, it's just there's something about red that axis deer just are not real fond of mm-hmm. but green is it's really ridiculous i mean they come right in like like there is no light on at all hmm. i found axis deer are a little in my opinion smarter than whitetail just more skittish yeah yeah uh, I, I really think so as well yeah. um okay so cool so it doesn't negatively affect other wildlife which hogs are smart animals, you, and if it didn't affect the hog, you wouldn't think that it would affect other animals, but, you, you know, got to ask. Um, yeah. Well, what is your, say you're out there hunting at night, and everyone has their favorite, uh, but what's your favorite caliber for hogs, and where is your favorite place to put that bullet as far as on their anatomy? Right. Well, it, for gun hunting, um, you know, I've always used a thirty out 6 regardless of what I'm hunting, whether Classic, it's elk okay. or central Texas yeah. deer, and just adjust the, uh, the bullet size, you know, for that. All right. So you like to roll with a .30-06 a classic there. I like a three oh eight myself. Uh, both great choices, and there's tons of awesome choices for hog calibers, but just want to know what your favorite was. Murray, I think this is a, a good stopping point, though. Um, let's take a quick break, come back, and talk about how the slow glow 
can benefit the bow hunter because it's absolutely incredible how close this light allows you to get to feral hogs uh, with your stick and string. So are you cool to stick around for another segment? Oh, absolutely. Perfect. And I'll tell you all what, uh, when I get my slow glow, you know where I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it up next to my all-season feeders. All-Seasons Feeders offers an entire lineup of game feeders, protein feeders. My favorite is the 600-pound stand-in fill. No more hauling a ladder around. No more backing your truck up right next to the feeder. Nope. You just pull the lid off and dump the corn in right there while you're standing up on your own two feet. It's that easy. Check it out. It's the All-Seasons Feeders stand-in fill, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. We all don't go anywhere. Up next, we'll grab our bows and chase some feral hogs under the cover of darkness. That's right. Bow hunting feral hogs at night. It's coming at you next, right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. There's a vacancy at home. Not tonight at the Notel Motel. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The system hog trap. Comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Every day I wake up knowing it could be my last. I ain't here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. So bring on the sunshine to hell with the red wine. Pour me some moonshine. Here for a good time, little George Strait bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, as always, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Uh, we are talking a little hog hunting today, uh, but with the caveat that we're hunting them at night and about to do it with a bow and arrow. So not something that's uh, very popular <laughs> just from a logistics standpoint. Uh, it's not easy to do, but we've got a, an extremely affordable way to make that a reality for any archers out there who are interested, because we all know hogs are just about, you know, 95% nocturnal. Uh, so anyway, before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by Horizon Firearms. Y'all have seen the pictures of that custom 7 mag that I took to Africa with me. Uh, absolutely love that gun. It's a tack driver. They'll build a custom gun for you as well, whatever caliber you want, from a 22 
all the way up to a, a dangerous game rifle for Africa. Check them out at horizonfirearms.com or you can stop by their store in College Station, Texas. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get back into it here with Murray Schote, the founder of Slow Glow Hoglites. Murray, we talked about you know how easy it really is to gun hunt uh, hogs when using the Slow Glow Hoglite. Let's take it a step further, though. For the guys that are hardcore bow hunters, uh, you know, there's plenty of guys out there who really never even pick up a gun anymore. Um, this light is also very attractive to that person, in my opinion, because it allows you to get so close to the hogs, and they have no idea you're there. And I know everybody, especially bow hunters out there, know about the the big plate that uh, is behind the hog's shoulder, especially the boars. You know, it's really, really tough to to penetrate that. And even with a high caliber, uh, high velocity caliber, you know, sometimes it's it's frustrating. You shoot a a hog behind the shoulder, and you know, it runs off, and you, of course they don't bleed a whole lot. So you know, we're we're a little frustrated sometimes. So. Uh, you know, I think it's our consensus and probably most hog hunters as well that shoot them in the neck or the head is generally a, a you know, better uh, placement, you know, mm-hmm. for a bullet. Well, Murray, um, you know where they don't have armor? In their ear hole? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, you know. And there again, you know, I know there'll be a lot of avid gun hunters out there that, that really use the big caliber and they, you know, it don't matter where you hit them, you know, it's, it's, it's going to kill them. Yeah. Uh, but the nice part about hogs is that, uh, you know they're they're pretty tough, and it, although that's frustrating for them, you've got to actually admire that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can double lung one with uh, with a bow and arrow, and they still run for a mile. And don't bleed so, it; it's hard to recover know, them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and and usually it's not out in an open field either. You know, anybody that hunts South Texas at all, you know, with all the mesquite and the prickly pear and the rattlesnakes and all, that those those hogs are going to take off for the very you know toughest area to try to to recover them. Mm-hmm. So shot placement with a gun, yeah, we definitely want to put them down. We want to put them down without running. Yeah. Uh, now bow and arrow is 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 the real trick, and and we've got some some tricks that we've learned over the years. Um, you know, I've shot big boars behind the shoulder with uh, say a recurve and had arrows bounce off. Uh, you know, penetrate about an inch, and then the the arrow just you know, falls out. So it's really, really frustrating for some of the traditional bow hunters that, you know, the shot placement is so critical that you've got to get that cording away shot. And sometimes at night, you know, you just don't have the luxury of of being able to pick and choose uh, which angle that the the hogs turned at. But we found the the trick with with bow hunting is that, first off, the lights – uh, when you when you're bow hunting, you can sneak up right behind the light. I mean, set it up to where it's downwind, and you, you know you're real quiet when you stalk in. But you get within ten feet of these hogs, so it makes the shot placement really, really easy. Plus, the adrenaline rush to be that close to hogs while they're sitting there feeding, they don't have a clue that you're there, uh, is is just out of this world. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're that close, the, the hogs almost always feed facing the light. And since you're sneaking and you're getting right up to the light, uh, they will they will face you. And so we were always sitting there waiting, you know, turn, you know, give me that quarter and away shot. But they're, they're so intent on getting real close to the light, and they can look up straight at you, and they can't see you because that light is so blinding. So you can sit there for an hour and a half and have a 300-pound hog 10 feet from you, and you'll never get that shoulder shot. 
Yeah. But we found that shooting them, you know, in the, the, the neck area between the two shoulders in the front is by far the best shot you can possibly do. And it kind of sounds, sounds funny. It's unconventional. But there is no plate there for you to have to penetrate. You go right above the brisket. And, you know, you're right there in the wheelhouse. And, you know, and they bleed really, really good. So blood trailing is, is uh, a lot better like that. And it's, it's very lethal. We seldom have hogs go more than 50 yards when, when you get one in the wheelhouse right there in the front. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome stuff. Well, that's a cool application um, right. to kind of cater towards the archery hunter, too, to be able to stock in and use that light. And it's just like hunting predators right. with a, a spotlight, you know. I mean, they can't see right. you. So uh, yeah. that's a, a pretty cool um, characteristic of the, the slow glow that, um, yeah, it's right. not just for gun hunters. So that's very cool. Um, well, let me, uh, let me ask you this, uh, price point, cause everyone's going to want to know, you know, they're probably going to go to your website, check it out. But, uh, before they do that, mm-hmm. they're wanting, we're going to want to know what, what this is going to cost them. Retail price on this slide is $179 mm-hmm. and that includes everything. You know, we haven't actually talked much about the light itself, but the $179 is for, uh, I mean, our premium product. It, um, it's got the slow glow technology. It's all of our lights do both red and green. And that's something on, on our competitors, you know, you can buy one of each, but, but there's very few that you can switch colors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, our, but our light's simple, you know, there's no switches, there's no bells and there's nothing you can change on it or mess up when you hook it up. If you hook up your battery, red, red, black to black, it's going to give you a red light output. All you do is simply reverse the polarity, hook it up backwards, and the light's going to be green. So you don't have to worry about, about you know, flipping the switch to the wrong position. It's going to either be red or green. Mm. Uh, also, all of our lights have a half-mile remote control. The range is a half-mile. So you can trigger our light. If you need more light, uh, you can command from a half mile off. You hit the full button, and it'll take three minutes. It'll go from that little five percent training mode all the way up to hundred uh, percent. So it's so effective on uh, on gun hunters. I mean, we have people on Facebook reporting all the time that they can shoot up to two hundred yards away. Hmm. So you know, I mean, it's it's really an effective tool to have that remote control. Or if you if you're bow hunting and you want to stalk in and you're afraid that 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 big boar is going to get just outside of the feeding area because, you know, it's got a 30 foot um, motion detection system on it. But if there's a big boar that's hanging out kind of on the outskirts and you're afraid that it won't trip that motion detection, you can always hit the remote control and get it up to a hundred percent and it'll stay at a hundred percent the entire, I mean, it would stay that way all night if you wanted to. So it gives you time to stalk in and get really, really close. So, you know, getting back to price point, $179 gets you all of that. Um, so pretty affordable. And uh, and that's pretty well edited. I mean, social media is really big for us. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly encourage people uh, when they they harvest hogs to, to send us pictures, you know, using the slow glow. And we certainly pay, post things to, to our website as well as Facebook. Awesome. And the one thing I didn't mention on our lenses, you know, we, we, we do tout this as being the ultimate smartest hog light for both gun and bows. Uh, there's a lens that reverses. You just unscrew the bezel on the outside of the light. You flip the lens over. One side is a 60-degree convex lens, which is really good to throw a kind of a tight spot. If you're hunting a Sendera or a water hole and you want that to focus all that light to 60 degrees, uh, you use that. 
but you just unscrew the bezel, flip the lens over, and it's a 120-degree flat lens on that side. Wow. So, you know, very effective for bow hunting. If you want to light a real wide area or gun hunting, you know, if, you have, if you're hunting a feeder area where you want to light up uh, a lot, you know, left or right, to use a 120-degree lens. Perfect. So very versatile. All yeah. right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. like I say, we, did, we tried to design this to be the very smartest hog light made. And, you know, to this point, nobody else has got the slow glow technology or any of these, uh, the features, you know, that, uh, that we kind of tout as being the, the professionals uh, hog light. Awesome. Well, very fascinating. I can't wait to get mine. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I've got some, I've got a big boar coming in every well he's nocturnal so this might be a his demise (laughs) yeah well it's amazing how many people tell us that because you know the big boars they get big for a reason you know they are smart and it's amazing how many people buy this and on the first night you know they'll they'll kill that boar because uh you know they the light's totally off during the day at night uh just about sundown just at the feeding time the premium feeding time is when ours will come on, but it only comes on to 5%, and that's where the training mode is. And we think that's a big difference because the big boar coming in, you know, he's going he's gonna to try to sense things that are different. And the 5% glow is not enough to alarm him at all. And it's only going to change when it gets within 30 feet and it triggers that motion detection. So, you know, it's slowly ramping up to, uh, and it goes to about 60% intensity just on motion. And like I say, it'll stay there as long as the boar's there, the cogs are there. Three minutes after they leave, it'll go back down to that training mode. So, you know, it, it just, it trains them so well that there's nothing to be alarmed at. And you don't have that, that instant flash on. It's uh, really, really an effective way to hunt. Very cool. Very cool. Let me ask you one more thing. Um, so say you've got four or five hogs feeding under the feeder the slow goes slow glows already on to you know its right. maximum strength what about mm-hmm. other hogs that show up late to the party and that light's already on does that affect them or since the other since hogs are already there do they just come cruising on in yeah we found that once you get a hog that's that's in the bait i mean it's feeding and it's lit up it don't matter i mean those hogs are gonna come in you know even the big boar now he may hang out a little further on the outskirts uh, but what you don't realize is that that reflective light, you know, it is so bright that you can see you see them long before they think that they're they're you know in jeopardy at all. Mm. And you know, if a conventional feeder light, unless there's something directly under the feeder, you know, you don't even have a clue that there's hogs there. Yeah. And you know, I mean, a lot of people won't even hit the remote control until they see a big hog on the outskirts. You know, they may have three or four hogs. Uh, in the baited area that are, you know, within 30 feet of the motion detection. And a big boar, he may be hanging out, you know, 40 yards behind them. But if you hit the remote control and you take it from 60% up to 100%, it's not just a quick flash on. It still takes another minute to reach that intensity. Uh, But it's amazing, you know, you hit that remote control a minute later, all of a sudden there's a big boar standing there. They don't have a clue that they're, they're being lit up. Yeah. So, well, you don't have to use the remote control. It'll eventually get to, by, by itself, with the motion detector, it'll get to that full capacity? No, the motion detection will always only take it to 60%. Okay. And and that's that's inherently smart on the system because if you're not hunting, you've left it out, you know, you'll say run for that a week, battery you've down, gone yeah. home, you wouldn't want it to be at 100% every single time. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it is always, uh, you know, a trade-off between the ba- available battery power and then how much light to put out. 
So, you know, that's why we've, we've designed it so that it'll only go to 100% when you hit that, that full button on the remote control. Okay. And that just it prolongs battery life, uh, you know, quite a bit. Well, I just thought of another application for this light, too, which obviously is designed for hogs. But any ranch right. you go to in, you know, hill country, south Texas, if, it's, if there's a, a, a good number of hunters on it, you're going to have a big gut pile. And I'm yeah. thinking, set this light on the gut pile and go to town on the coyotes that come in there. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We have we have a we have a lot of predator uh, hunters that that use it just for that. Uh, but of course, we're working on different prototypes, you know, of different other kinds of, of predator lights. But absolutely, using a slow glow over gut pile is very effective for coyotes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's in, and you can actually use it with the remote control over a big field as well. You know, if you're uh, it's amazing, you know, how far you can see the eyes on just an open field um, when you use your remote control. I mean, you can set it up, go ahead and hit 100%, and, you know, you can easily see 150 yards, you know, of eyes at 150 yards, uh, you know, with with the slow glow, just, just using the remote control. Mm-hmm. So, but gut piles, yeah, it's 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 a slam dunk. If you've got a gut, if gut pile and you've got codes in the area, uh, definitely the way to go. Awesome. Well, cool stuff, man. I'm excited to get mine, and I will right. uh, certainly report back to you. But uh, just from what I've seen and and what I know about this product, what you've told us, uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be effective. And that big bore is not long for this world. Oh, absolutely. Well, wish you the best of luck on that, and and uh, you got to send us that picture because we want to put it on on Facebook and our website. I will absolutely do it. Okay. All right, Murray. Well, very good. Thanks again. Well, very good. It's great talking to you, and you take care. All right. All right, Murray Schott, uh creator of the Slow Glow Hog Light. Fascinating stuff there uh, from a bow hunting standpoint because, I mean, y'all know I like to thermal hog hunt. There's uh, <laughs> there's no secret about that, but can't do that with a bow. So for that reason, I'm pumped about the Slow Glow. And then also, you know, not everyone has a thermal. Uh, take my brothers out to the lease, for example, and there's three of us. Well, only one thermal, so that doesn't work. Uh, this is going to change the game on so many levels. Uh, so cool stuff on that front. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by John X Safaris. Uh, I'm headed back to South Africa next June, 22nd through the 30th. That is the date for the Lone Star Outdoors show hunt. I've uh, got three guys already going, and we can take up to six. So three spots left. If you're interested, shoot me an email to LoneStarOutdoorsShow at gmail.com. And uh, I'd love to have you on what was the hunt of my lifetime, and I know it will be for you as well. Uh, so, John X Safaris, next summer, email me if you're interested, Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Uh, just looking at the clock here, we've got to go. We're actually uh, over time now. So, uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors.